Okay, so let's take our Bibles, let's make our way in the Word of God to the book of 1 Corinthians as we've been kind of journeying through here in uh, chapter 6, the first 11 verses of the 6th chapter uh, in a message that I've entitled, Washed, Sanctified, and Justified. And so with that, let's take our hearts to the Lord. Father, once again, we just want to say thank you for assembling us here together. Uh, Lord, for your love for us. God, the desire that you have to not only challenge us, but to change us and make us more like Jesus. And so, as always, to that end, I pray, God, that you would just help us to uh, let our defenses down and just to open our hearts and our minds and just humbly hear you today uh, that your word might have your way in our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I believe there is some uh, confusion that uh, could use a little clarification, because as you look at the uh, early church, man, and you compare it to what's happening today, it seems that there are so many problems in the church today. There's so much pollution in the church today that we can so easily become disillusioned. I mean, you look back and you read through the book of Acts and you think, man, they, they really had it going on. Man, they were moving and shaking. It was a group of people that had their act together, you know. Uh, see what I did there? Book of Acts, act together. Come on, stay with me. Stay with me. All right. Well, anyway, there they were. And I mean, miracles were happening. And, and uh, you know, God's power was on the loose. And what a glorious time. You know, if we could only be like they were. And, you know, it's certainly true that we read of glorious things uh, taking place in those early years, those foundational years of the church. But I'd like to remind you that though what we have uh, in the book of Acts is accurate, the record is accurate, you need to know that in and of itself it is incomplete. If you want more of an accurate picture of the early church, really you need to read through the entirety of the New Testament epistles. In fact, you might want to go ahead and throw in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation as well. And what you're going to discover is that much like the church today, the church then had its fair share of struggles had its fair share of problems, of sinful situations that needed dealt with, and that we're not quite as far off as one might imagine. And my suspicion is that is because the, though times and places and customs and cultures may change, as you know, as I like to say, human nature, the human heart remains the same. And so as we slide back into chapter 6 here, you remember we're exploring the same subject, that of of judgment. Paul was talking about the sin of the situation in the congregation and how they needed to judge it appropriately and accordingly. But he he broaches a different topic. Basically, when it came to confronting wrong and settling issues scripturally, the Corinthian Christians were simply showing laxity or leniency. Uh, They were indifferent toward their responsibility to the body. And so Paul moves on from morality, though he will touch it very directly, very strongly here toward the close of our time together, but he moves into the issue of legality. So let's turn our attention to the first verse of the sixth chapter where we read, 
Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Guys, I tell you, when it came to these Corinthian Christians, Paul certainly had his hands full. Now, I have zero doubt he never regretted uh, preaching the gospel in Corinth. You know, Jesus didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And we thank God for that, don't we? I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm so glad uh, that Jesus came to call the sinners to repentance. And at the same time, for a group of people who considered themselves in Corinth as so wise, so spiritual, so, you know, having it all together within the context of Christianity, Christianity, and I'm not sure that a more problematic church is presented throughout the entire New Testament. Uh, the wording of this first phrase in chapter 6 is such to the extent that Paul's mind is simply blown as he moves from one topic to the next, like, I can't believe I'm actually having to address these things. He says, dare any of you, you know, it's like, how, how dare you? How could you do this? And just to be clear, he wasn't angry in the sense of just being fleshly mad, but was angry in the sense of what you're doing is interfering with and diminishing the Lord's glory. Now listen, I'm just going to go ahead and let the cat straight out of the bag or the dog out of the yard. I mean, is that a thing that people say, I'm going to let the dog out of the backyard? Is that a, Everybody says that, right? Let the dog out of the yard. I mean, we've, we've let enough cats out of bags. Let's let some dogs out of the yard. I don't know. Look it up. Maybe no one says it. I just said it. But I'm going to go ahead and kind of get to the point here. The point that Paul is going to develop is that God's glory and the cause of his kingdom is greater and, quite frankly, more important than our rights. And I know that can offend our American ears, but we, you and me, need to let that kind of soak in. Evidently, there was a Christian in the congregation who believed that he had been wronged by another, and he decided to take the man to court in order to seek justice and have the matter settled. He went, as our phrase uh, explains, he went to law before the unrighteous. Now, in the Jewish community, legal matters would be settled at the gates of the city. And you see that throughout your Old Testament as you read through. Greek culture held court right in the heart of the marketplace. And the local judge sat on what is known as the Bema seat, or Bema, B-E-M-A, which is, it means judgment, but the Bema seat of the civil magistrate. Now, We've already developed in previous studies the fact that in the ancient world, entertainment was quite different than it is today. Uh, you know, they weren't streaming movies. They weren't watching their favorite stock track up and down and this and that. They weren't on social media. No, they, they would maybe catch a sporting event or uh, listen to a public speaker and they're, and they're watching him move and how he presents and how charismatic he may be and how he turns the point and all. Or maybe they would catch a court case down at the public market, the city market. And because of that, people's legal problems quickly became public knowledge. 
And when, oh, when two Christians were battling each other in the legal system, man, this was like wildfire. This was really uh, something for them to kind of chew on and, and, and spread around. Guys, listen, I know it seems quite shocking to some of you, uh, but this was not a problem just in the early church, still today, and I know, I know, but there are times when Christians have problems with one another. I mean, who would have thunk, right? I don't know. Perhaps there was some kind of construction going on. One man building a house for another man in the church. And, you know, the contracts are put in place. The project begins. But somewhere along the line, there's a dispute, right? I mean, one says to the other, you owe me for this job. And the other says to him, no, you didn't do it right. And so I'm not paying until it's fixed. And the other says, oh, it may not be exactly what you wanted, but it's exactly what I said I would do. And so you need to pay up. And on and on it goes, back and forth, until one says to the other, look, I'm done with this. I'll see you in court. Now, I don't know exactly if that's what was happening here, but for the sake of our principle at play, we can just presume something along those lines. And Paul says, what are you thinking in taking this case before the ungodly. Now, when he says here in verse 1 that you go to law before the, well, our word is unrighteous, more literally, it's unjust. Not in the sense of, you know, a a, a secular judge doesn't have a a moral barometer, is incapable of of discerning a correct verdict or something like that, or that he's just a bad person and will never do the right thing. He's speaking in the sense of the fact that he's not, it's a man who's not justified before God. They're taking something to a secular justice system. Guys, the concept is this. Why in the world... Would you seek justice in the presence of the unjust? Are you following me? Now, of course, I should point out this this, this does not in any way forbid the Christian from ever seeking legal help. I mean, Paul himself, there he was, right, in the book of Acts, and he had been placed uh, unlawfully in prison and was kind of getting the run around and and, uh, couldn't get anywhere, and so uh, he himself appealed to Caesar, And he points out in Romans chapter 13 that, listen, as it pertains to criminal cases, okay, criminal cases, the state or the federal court is is where such a case belongs. But pertaining to civil matters, that's the context here. Pertaining to civil matters, believers should work those out amongst themselves or, if necessary, in the presence of other objective, God-fearing believers, Why? Well, he's going to give us more than one reason. But let me just say this. As I already mentioned, it's a horrible witness. Right there they are. They're, ooh, these Christians are going at it. You know, and it's a horrible witness to the world when two believers can't settle an issue between themselves. You know, people begin to mock Christianity. Saying things like, well, I thought Jesus said that you were to love one another. You know, didn't Jesus say that all the world would know that you were his disciples and that you would love, you know, one another? 
Didn't he say, love your enemies and all? Well, how are you going to do that if you can't even get along with each other? How are you supposed to love someone you don't know or someone who has your worst interest at heart when here you are, family, uh, you know, children of God, you see, and you can't even work things out? And so it diminishes your witness and your ministry to the unbelieving. Something else you need to bear in mind is something that Paul wrote earlier even to the Corinthians when he said, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned, but he who is spiritual judges all things. In other words, you can't really hope for a godly outcome from an ungodly individual. Does that make sense? Now again, I'm not saying that they'll never give a correct verdict. That's that's not the issue in play here, okay? I'm saying that there is a basic understanding of the heart of God and of the word of God and the mind of Christ that resides in the believer that does not reside in the unbeliever. And believe me, as believers, anytime there's an issue at hand, you and me, we want the heart of God and the word of God and the mind of Christ at work in a situation whereby there's been a violation, don't we? Well, why else then should we trust the saints or believers to help us in a civil matter? Well, let's turn our attention to the next verse, he says, do you not know? It's a rhetorical question, by the way, they should know. He's already shared this with them, you see, when he was with them. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? Well, how much more? Things that pertain to this life. If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those least esteemed by the church to judge? Guys, I say this to your shame. Is it so that there's not, you know, a wise man among you, not even one? who will be able to judge between his brethren, but brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers? Guys, again, let's not lose sight of the fact that the Corinthians prided themselves on their wisdom. This was a big thing in the Grecian culture. And Paul is really trying to show them their lack of wisdom in the way that they're interacting with one another. He says, how is it that you don't have so much as one wise man who can arbitrate or who can mediate in this situation? Here you are, you've got all these gifts of the Spirit, right? You've got all this spiritual insight, all this understanding, yet you can't mediate a simple disagreement. He says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? You know, the idea is if you're going to be given a throne, if you're going to be given 
a part in some way, shape, form, and fashion of God's governing system in the millennial kingdom, in his millennial kingdom, you know, you might want to figure out how to mediate these comparatively menial matters. Guys, it's a fairly mind-blowing fact that the Bible teaches that you and me, we will be somehow and in some way used to arbitrate and mediate in the millennial kingdom of God. Think about that. And time forbids us to get into too much detail on the topic. And it's so, as a matter of fact, isn't it interesting some of the things that scripture just kind of mentions in passing, like we should just kind of have this grip on this. We don't need to spend time dwelling on this. Paul just states this as a matter of fact in passing here. He says, don't you know that the saints are going to judge the world? Well, then how is it that, and he just moves on. But more than one passage in your Bible points to the fact that people, and you know, you might, you, you could grab our studies in the book of Revelation and, you know, whatever, First, Second Thessalonians, Matthew 24, all the different things is the tribulation and what happens therein and then thereafter and all. And people who survive the great tribulation will go on into the millennial kingdom of Christ and the earth will begin to repopulate and we will, those of us, uh, who have, uh, you know, uh, given our lives to Jesus Christ here and now. We've been raptured. We come this and all of the things we return with him. You know, and the, I saw and the Lord came in the horse and the thousands and ten thousands upon ten thousands of his saints and all of this to establish righteousness. Yeah. And the Bible says, you know, here that some and somehow we will maintain and enforce righteousness upon the earth throughout this millennial kingdom as emissaries and ambassadors of Christ. I mean, it's one of those things that unless the Bible said it, you'd have trouble believing it. We read in Revelation chapter 5 where the saints break out in praise to Jesus saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and you have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe, every tongue, every people and nation. For God so loved what? The world, Right? Every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation, and have made us notice kings and priests to our God, notice, and we shall reign on the earth. Now, I want you to note the word shall. You know, we're not presently, but we will eventually. It's going to happen. And so if we're going to judge the world, we should be able to mediate comparatively Small matters. And guys, if that's not mind-blowing enough, not only will you judge the world, did you see what he says next? You're, you're going to judge angels as well. There in verse 3, do you not know that we shall judge angels? You say, man, what does that look like? Well, listen, I don't know. <laughs> the Bible doesn't say However, I do think that it's safe to say that uh, it doesn't mean that, that, that we will have some part in judging you know, God's faithful uh, angels. You're probably not going to review the work of your guardian angel and uh, you know, ask him where he was that day that you fell out of your tree house or you, you, know, you skinned your knee and give him some sort of demerit for not being you know, angel on the spot kind of a thing. Go right, I will not ever look away a, a billion times on the chalkboard of heaven or something. You know, I don't think that's going to happen. 
But I believe the angels in view here are fallen angels, demonic beings. Those who didn't need faith to believe in God, they dwelt in the very presence of God, they witnessed the creation of the heavens and the earth, and yet they chose to rebel against him, thinking perhaps they could even somehow dethrone him. And throughout human history, they've sought not only to mar God's creation, but also to drag as many of those whom God has created in his image directly to hell. You know, the destiny of redeemed men and women, the reality of us one day being higher than the angels, sitting in judgment over the angels, though we were initially created a little lower than the angels in that we're subject to death, you know, this whole concept of being created initially lower and then eventually higher and sitting in judgment over, it must really be a sore spot, at least to one particular angel. You know, sometimes we wonder, don't we? I mean, what exactly happened to Lucifer, you know, the devil, Satan, to cause him to want to rebel against God and against his plan. And guys, listen, what I'm about to say is complete conjecture on my behalf. Okay, don't go around saying, well, Pastor Jeff said the Bible says. I'm not saying the Bible says. I'm just saying that perhaps at least in part, it was for this reason. You know how fascinating it must have been. Can you imagine witnessing the creation of the world? And there's no way of exactly knowing when God shared or how he revealed his plan to the angels. But at some point, it was, it was made plain that God would create a being in his own image. But it would be sort of an, an, an amphibious, kind of a strange, uh, multi-dimensional type of being. <clears throat> you know, again, created a little lower than the angels, capable of dying, yet would be served by the angels. The book of Hebrews tells us that angels are, check it out, they're all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for or serve those who will inherit salvation. And so this creature that God would create would be a physical being, yet have an eternal spirit. He would dwell in the physical realm, but one day enter into the spiritual realm to live forever with God. Now still being under God, obviously, but over the angels. I don't know, perhaps Lucifer didn't like that plan. Didn't want to serve this lowly, inferior creature, and certainly didn't want to see this creature known as man being raised up higher than him. Starting lower, being raised up higher. So he rebelled against God. I don't know. But what I do know is that every person that he deceives, every person who leaves this planet apart from Jesus Christ, is one more person with whom he can have the perverse pleasure of knowing that they will never sit in judgment over him. 
be that as it may, Paul is pounding home the point, if you're going to reign ultimately, if you're going to judge the world, even angelic beings, isn't there even one man among you who can can settle this, this matter, this small matter, comparatively speaking? It kind of brings things into perspective, doesn't it? A secular court has no spiritual discernment. You'd be better off to go to the poorest equipped believer who at least seeks the counsel of God's word and the leading of God's spirit. Now, in verse 7, he says, Now, now therefore, you know, you, you're going to, to law against brother, that before unbelievers. Now, therefore, or because of that, notice, it's already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? You see, here it is. What's more important, ultimately, eternally, your rights personally or the great? of God's glory. See, which one means more to you? Paul says in taking this matter before a secular system, parading your inability to reconcile an issue, listen, you've already lost. Even if you win, you've already lost. Think about that. In taking another brother or sister to court, no one wins. You know, the verdict may fall your way. But from an eternal perspective, you know, as it pertains to your ability to minister fruitfully or maintain a good testimony to those outside the body, you've lost way more than you've gained. That's what he's saying. And it's a hard life lesson. But again, from an eternal perspective, the Bible teaches us that concerning our dealings with other believers, listen now, it's better to simply absorb the wrong and trust the Lord to make it right, either in the here and now, or ultimately when we stand before him. You know, it's a, it's a turn the other cheek, a, a, a go the extra mile kind of principle that's in play here. You know, those things that sound so good when we're sitting in a Bible study, but they're so hard when it's taking place in my life. The Proverbs put it like this, do, do not say, I will recompense evil. Wait for the Lord, and he will save you. But Paul put it this way, he said, repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men, and if it's possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, notice, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. One more from the Apostle Peter, for this is commendable, if because of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. And as you read that passage and you continue on there in in Peter chapter 2, he points to Jesus as the example who did no wrong, who had no sin, yet endured wrong toward himself, commended himself to God who judges righteously. Think about that. And so we're to think of God's glory and the cause of his kingdom over and above our rights or what's owed to us. 
Now, again, I want to state very clearly that doesn't mean that we shouldn't confront the issue. We very much should. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't seek to settle things justly. He's simply saying that in the case of two believers, godly mediation, godly arbitration, you know, is what we should seek. But even if the church fails to settle the dispute, the guy won't listen or give way, it didn't fall his way, so he ain't gonna do you know, what everybody agreed to to begin with. He says, listen, trust the Lord. No one who accepts wrong for the sake of God's glory will lose in the end. God will one day right every wrong. Think of it like this, you guys, and this is hard. This is hard for all of us. Better to suffer loss financially than, to, than it is to lose spiritually or suffer loss spiritually, okay? But this, this was not the case in, in the Corinthian congregation. Look at verse 8. He says, no, no, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Back in verse 8, here's the point. There's no place in Christian businesses for dishonest dealings. Before God, you're to pay your bills, you're to charge a fair rate, don't drag things out, don't rip people off, you know, pay your taxes, don't cheat the system. How many people have rejected the faith and the fellowship of the saints due to dishonest dealings and being cheated by Christian businesses? Yet, guys, for as much as there's no place for dishonest dealings by Christians, how much more is there no such place among Christians, you see? I don't know, maybe this guy was thinking, I don't know, man. I mean, it be, you know, probably wasn't the best thing to do, but it's, it wasn't like some horrible atrocity. It wasn't like I, I murdered someone, you know? And Paul shares with him the sobering reality. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Guys, he's saying to the offender, you obviously don't realize how serious your sin is. Because the only thing you might gain, you know, you're thinking of what you got away with, the only thing you might gain from cheating your brother, you know, through these ungodly dealings is an an eternity with the ungodly. Think about that. Now, of course, he wasn't trying to say that this man wasn't saved. He says here in verse 8 that he's among the brethren. However, can we agree that our faith is also made manifest by our works? We would agree with that, wouldn't we? James said it like this. He said, show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works, right? So the question to consider is this. If one can cheat and defraud a brother, have no heart to make it right, no heart to repent, is that person's faith even genuine to begin with? 
I mean, do they really know the Lord? It's just a, it's just a question that you've got to work out between you and the Lord with that, right? What does Paul say? He says, do not be deceived. Guys, how many people have deceived themselves into thinking that they're the exception? It's so common. You know, they can do what the Bible says that no one else can do, but they'll still go to heaven because God has somehow or for some reason given them immunity. Guys, it doesn't, Paul said, it doesn't work like that. Don't be deceived. Don't deceive yourself. Listen, if the Son of God was separated from God because of our sin, what makes us think that we can live in sin and still be okay with God? You ever think about that? Hmm. We might even go as far as to say that a pattern of unrighteous works is indicative of an unrighteous heart. The person claiming to be a Christian yet living a lifestyle that's characterized by more or one or more, pardon me, of of these kinds of things may say one thing, but their life shows quite the opposite. Are you following? And these are the kinds of things here in verses, what, 9 and 10 that, that Paul in Galatians 5 called the works of the flesh, And we've talked about the flesh, not skin and bone, but this sin nature that's interwoven into the fabric of our inner being that tries to express itself through, you know, a sinful action in our lives and all. Having said that, I should also say this, you know, that to fall prey to one or more of these sins isn't automatic exclusion, you know, from the kingdom of God. Well, there you are, you fell, you you committed this sin or you did that thing, that's it, you're out, it's a one-way ticket, you're not passing go, you're not collecting $200, you're going directly to hell. Doesn't work like that either. When Paul lists these things, the reference isn't to an isolated occasion whereby, you know, someone got caught up in something and, and, and you know, they regret it, they repent of it, they want to lead their lives set apart to God, but they were snared and all. The reference is to an individual whose life is characterized or dominated by sins of this Sort. It's not a, guys, it's not a, a exhaustive list of every kind of sin one could commit. It's just a, a, of this sort kind of a list. Now, I should also say this, that that's not, let's not, okay, I know the way we think, right? Well, then if it's talking about a kind of a pattern of things, a life dominated or characterized that looks like these things, then perhaps just the occasional thing I might still be okay then. So what you're saying then is that like if I just stumble on the occasion, as long as it's not a practice pattern, I should be okay. Now listen, that's not what I'm saying. Number one, you should recognize that these things go against everything that you are, all that you have been given in Christ, okay? Number two, we should remember that a lifestyle of sin begins with a single act or an occasional occurrence of sin, okay? So let's not try and skate along the edge. Listen to me, if you're thinking like this, well, can I still do this and be saved? What if I do this, then am I saved? You know, if you're trying to think and skate along the edge of how much can I sin and still be saved, you're already thinking the wrong direction. 
Let's not, let's not think along the lines of how much can I sin and still be saved, but rather how close to Christ can I get in this life? But guys, I want you to notice that extortion, you know, ripping people off, Reviling, what's that? We're talking a smear campaign. We're talking uh, character assassination. Uh, covetousness, being greedy for gain. They're right there on the list beside fornication, adultery, uh, homosexuality. Guys, I want to put this out as well because these are ancient writings. So some people like to say, well, you know, Paul, he was, he was writing to like a homophobic, uh, you know, uh, culture. That's not true at all. Homosexuality in the ancient world was rampant. Uh, 14 out of 15 of the first uh, Roman emperors were either bisexual or homosexual. Did you know that? Nero, who was the emperor when Paul was writing this, had a young boy castrated and married him with this pomp and pageantry and, and made him his wife. And then uh, later on, Nero lived with another man and was declared to be his wife. And guys, I know that homosexuality is really becoming more and more popular and more and more, you know, accepted and even encouraged today. And I know that a lot of churches and a lot of pastors have gone out of their way to try and write these scholarly sounding articles that, uh, you know, somehow show that the Bible really has nothing negative to say about homosexuality. And in fact, it supports uh, such a relationship between two loving and consenting adults. And so therefore they, you know, will marry homosexual couples or uh, they will ordain homosexual, uh, you know, ministers and all. Listen. I just have to tell you, as sincerely and sensitively, sensitively as I can, the Bible clearly condemns homosexuality, okay? But listen, as it does any other sin, okay? People will say things like, well, you know, in the Greek, uh, the word for homosexuality speaks of, you know, like male prostitution or even pedophilia and all. And, and, and it's true that this word in, uh, in verse, what is it, uh, 9, uh, that's been translated homosexuals can be taken that way, does include those things. However, the very next word, sodomite, speaks very clearly of a male who lies with another male as a female. Okay. Uh, the first word also, where he says homosexuals, it, it has like an effeminate nature to it. It speaks of the effeminate male or the passive male in the, in the situation or relationship as to where the word sodomite uh, speaks of the active male in the situation. I think you understand. And so, family, the context is clear. Any act of homosexuality is clearly condemned scripturally. And those who would tell you differently, just, I just want you to know, they're just not cutting the text squarely, nor do they take into account the totality of the counsel of God's word contextually. They're not what we would call dividing the word of truth rightly. And I would just be remiss to not share with you honestly. But as I said, Homosexuality is not on some kind of worse than any other sin list. Uh, it's right there with extortion. You know, you're ripping someone off, you're on the same list. 
uh, reviling, you know, you're talking ill of people, you're on the same list. If you're a fornicator or a drunkard, you're on the same list. So we can't excuse it, but neither can we single it out as something that God is particularly offended by above and beyond any other sin. Are you following me? Okay. And by the way, uh, Karen and Jared, you guys want to start, we're going to start making our way to a close here. Uh, On top of that, we need to remember this. I I love the way it transitions into verse 11 where he says, and such were some of you, right? I mean, this is the, kind, this is the list of the likes of us. We came out of things like this. Not, here's the idea. None of us were born, anyone here born free from sin, I would just love to meet you. Right? None of us were born free from sin. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. But in his grace, God, come on somebody, he's done a great work in your life. And he has saved us from our sins in Jesus Christ. You were, our word is, washed. He says you were washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. You have been washed of your sin. You were sanctified. What does that mean? Set apart by God that you might be used uh, for the glory of God. You know, when you're sanctified, you're set apart for a specific purpose. You know, you might think of a wedding dress. It's something that's sanctified. It's something that's set apart. How many people wear wedding dresses just kind of out and about? You don't see it. It's not made for that. It looks awkward if it's, if it's not in that or if it's in that context. Why? Because it's set apart. It's sanctified. It's for a specific purpose. So too your life in Christ. It's set apart by God to be used for the glory of God. And you were justified. What does that mean? It means declared innocent in the sight of God. You've maybe heard me say before, you can break the word justified down to help you understand it. It's just as if I'd never sinned at all. That's what it means. And so therefore, our obligation is to God. He's the one who's washed us. He's the one who's sanctified us. He's the one who's justified us. Our bodies are to be used for his glory, not our own gratification. Do you understand? And he'll talk about that more throughout this letter. But you've gone from verses 9 and 10 into verse 11. I love that. And it's not by any great effort or work of your own, he says, but through the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And you know what? Maybe, maybe that's not where you're at. Maybe your life is currently you know, defined by some of the things in the previous couple of verses. You can be washed today, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. You say, well, how does that happen? It's quite simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be cleansed of your sin and find new life in Him. Let's bow our hearts.
God, we thank you that you love us. And, and Lord, you love us such to the extent that you speak clearly to us. You don't want there to be any confusion among us. Because, God, you've given your all that you might save us. And we want our lives to honor you. And so we're asking for hearts of repentance toward you and reconciliation toward one another. God, I don't know. I just pray that if there's something going on in the midst of the family, maybe a couple people in this room or maybe someone in this room and someone outside of this room who knows you. I don't know, but Lord, we're just praying you, you've given us the spirit of reconciliation. And so to that end, Lord, I just pray, God, that you would work in our midst, that you would be glorified in us. And again, you guys, we're preparing our hearts to uh, partake of communion today, to remember the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. But I want you to know as our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed, and we're just kind of in this place of meditation and contemplation upon the goodness and the grace and the love of God, that God loves you, that Jesus laid down his life for you, that in him you might have eternal life. So can I encourage you, can I exhort you, surrender to him today wholeheartedly, unconditionally. Call upon Him and you will be saved. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And I don't know. Perhaps everybody here does know the Lord. Perhaps everybody here, you know, is in love with the Lord. And I mean, that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Maybe not. Maybe you've gone to church. Maybe you... You know, you, you kind of did the thing. You went and you got baptized or, you know, you brought your Bible or you, you know, threw a little money in the plate and you think, well, this is what God wants from me. Listen, God doesn't want you to trust in something that you've done, something that you will do, but rather what he has done for you upon the cross. And so if God's ministering to you, I just want to pray for you. I'm just going to ask you to just Raise your hand wherever you are, and if I see your hand, I'll say so, and uh, you can uh, put it back down. But I just want to give you a second. Say, hey, you know what? I need Christ to come into my life, to forgive me of my sin, to make me new. Is there anyone I can pray for? This is your moment for that. I see you there. God bless you. Who else? Today's a day of salvation for you. God, we're just so thankful that your love is unconditional and that you just love us. And I just want to pray that as you're moving and as you're ministering among us, Lord, that you continue to work change or that we let go of those things that we're kind of maybe uh, flirting with or thinking about or, you know, just latching on to on the occasion and that we would just lead our lives set apart to you. And listen, I just encourage you that if the Lord is calling you, then just come to him. Just get on your face before him in your heart. Just cry out to him, Lord, I believe in you. God, I, I turn from my sin 
and I trust in you. Fill me with your spirit. Help me to to lead my life for you. From right now forward, for the rest of my days. Lord, we're all just so thankful that you've put our name in your book of life. 